Hello, welcome back to Creative Chit Chat. I'm Ryan McLeod and this is a quarter century of episodes. This is number 25 and it's with Colin Anderson. Now he is the MD of Denki Games and they're based at Vision Building. Colin's had a really interesting career and an absolutely fascinating chat with him from talking about his ways of problem solving and his sort of his approach to that and how that's gone from when he was very young to to being developed and then I'm using it right up to today. Um, we talk about his time at, at DMA Design. Um, I geek out a little bit about um, GTA. He was the head of the sound team for that, and we talk about how to add value and how sound has to enhance a game um, and really build upon it and we go into a lot of the, the details about how that was applied in GTA and I found it absolutely fascinating and yeah got a little nostalgic feeling and going back a few years playing it um, for the first time you know, sort of delve quite deep into that and then we open up to talk about uh, Denki and the, the creation of that and then sort of the, the journey and the ride of that to, to where they are now. And then what's also fascinating is it leads on from Colin's Pecha talk, which is all about creative engines and how companies and agencies are actually burning through people as a fuel um, and burning through people's lives, which is, isn't healthy, isn't ethical, isn't really sustainable, and it's completely inefficient in the way that these creative engines are operating. But, as I've been alluding to and talking about for the last couple of weeks, there's some exciting stuff this week online. And there's a brand spanking new website. There are still a few little clips and things that I need to sort, so please bear with me on that. And hopefully I'll have them all done by next week. But my priority was was getting the, the products up and live and out there and having this way for you guys to, to help support the podcast and help sustain what I'm doing in the long term. Um, I know I've mentioned this before, and kind of been spending, it works out about four to eight hours a week on the podcast. And it's really enjoyable. It's allowed me to meet some amazing people and have some fantastic conversations and then document them and put them out and I really want to keep that going and sustain that in the long term. But in order to do that, I need to cover some of the costs of the equipment and software licenses, things like travel expenses and just to get a little bit of money coming in would really help sustain that. Um, And it means that I can keep going out, finding amazing creative people having these conversations and putting them together for you. So if you would like to support the podcast, if you go to the new website, it's again cccdundee.com forward slash store. And on there, I've got seven little products, all based upon the podcast content. So they're all based upon quotes or things that were said or discussions that were had. And the first thing is a little mini book. So it's a, an A6 Visograph printed book, all on recycled paper, handmade, and it features a whole bunch of quotes from the first sort of 15 or so episodes, all designed by me, um, all typeset, and it's just a bit of fun and it's just a really nice little object, that, uh, great fun making as well. Beyond that, um, I've got two prints from quotes from the podcast. One from Sean Parkinson's episode that is, fuck it, let's talk about sharks. Um, I think I chose that just for its pure comedy value and how much of a crux and turning point it was in the episode. And we go off on a tangent and talk about um, his project with making love songs for Greenland sharks. And then the, the second print, um, is from Stephen Moore's quote uh, of Roots Furniture um, and his quote is you don't learn by doing everything right 
and that was something that I found particularly poignant um, and really insightful and it just sort of that little reminder so both them again they've been risograph printed if you don't know what risograph is it kind of looks like a big photocopier and what you do is you put in big drops of ink and you fire it through the photocopier and in the same way as screen printing you then build up those layers of ink but because you're firing the papers through so fast you get this sort of unique feel to every piece you don't know necessarily how the the drum's going to take the paper or the ink's going to attach to it or the the way that the master will, will capture the typography or the layout or uh, the register of it so you get this sort of offset rough and ready aesthetic which i think is really nice and again it sort of hints at the the way that i'm doing the podcast so all the all the products have been done in this way uh, I've got to say thanks to Katie Guthrie of Taco Press for helping me do that as well during the week. Um, and a second thanks has got to go to Gareth Christie of Flick for Kicks, who very kindly donated the materials to make the badges, which are the, the final little products that I'm putting out. So I've got four badges, uh, one of the logo and three of sort of little quips from the podcast. Um, so thanks to Gareth for providing them. But yeah, so the mini book and the prints are out there at £10 and the badges are pound. So you can go onto the website, you can I'll happily deliver them, but if you'd like to save on that cost, or if you're local in Dundee, which I know a lot of you guys are, I'm also offering a collection service. So there's an order form on the website, um, on the store page under each, of the items and you can then order through there I'll set up a time where you can come up to Fleet Collective and collect your purchases um, and we'll just do a a sort of cash exchange at that point but if you do want it delivered you can go onto the Etsy store um, and I'll just deal with it all through there but yeah I mean I'm not making any money off the postage and packaging it's just that Royal Mail seem to charge a hell of a lot these days for uh, yeah a poster tube which is just ridiculous but anyway that's probably the subject of another podcast but yeah so if you would like to support the podcast in a small way or in a bigger way I really appreciate it and it would really help me continue exactly what I'm doing and make it a much more sustainable thing and yeah and I want to continue creating great content for everyone to enjoy because I've been getting a lot of, of positive feedback so hopefully I can I can keep it going for for a long time to come but anyway, let's get on to episode number 25, and this is with Colin Anderson. I'd probably start with playing guitar, okay. because that was the inroads into an awful lot of what happened subsequently. So I discovered at a relatively young age, certainly when I was at primary school, that I was a frustrated musician. And I say frustrated because I was growing up in a council house in a place called King Cardinal Fourth, and it didn't really celebrate creativity the the way that perhaps you might have wanted. As a result, I didn't really have much of an opportunity to express that musical output. Also, I discovered that my my first love was actually drums, so I wanted to, to be a drummer, but living in a council flat my parents quickly explained to me that that was never going to be an option because we had neighbours to think about. So in the end, I thought, right, we'll settle settle for something a little bit quieter. <clears throat> so I went for guitar, which I, I dearly love. I mean, it really is. If you ship me off to a desert island with nobody, with nothing to do and nothing, no one watching, I, w- I would, and gave me a guitar, I would just sit and play all day. That's pretty much what I do. And and so that really kicked off my creative spark. Because what it did was, I didn't know anybody that played guitar. And it's not like now where you can just go on YouTube and see people playing all sorts of things. It was almost like exploring. You had to go, you had to start figuring out, right, how do people do this? So even tuning it, I didn't know what it was meant to be tuned to. And I didn't have a book that told me. and. So you really have to start at first principles. 
Where do you, so where do you go then? Well, I mean, well, I mean, there's there is no there's no internet thing. Going yeah, on. exactly. So, so, is it family? Is it friends? Is it library? It was friends of a friend. So I eventually tracked somebody down who who could play guitar, and persuaded him to come around to the house and tune it. So he came around and tuned it, and that was it. I never touched it after that because I didn't know what what he tuned it to or, or really how he tuned it. I just didn't touch it, and it, would, it was slowly going out of tune over time. It was getting worse and worse. I had to quickly try it. But it was it was that sort of it really was that sort of basic that you start. I look back on that now and I just think that seems ridiculous. You know, it's, it's nonsense, but it taught me a really important lesson. So when you listen to somebody playing a piece of music and you've got this box with strings on front of it, on the front of it, and you're listening to it and you think, I know this box can make that sound because it's right there. I can hear it. But I have no idea how to do it. So I know how it's possible, I just don't know how to do it. So you're really looking at a, what feels like an impossible hill, an impossible mountain to climb, how to do that. But it taught me to take something that seemed utterly impossible and break it down into a series of steps that were achievable. And that by just doing one after the other, however long it took, you know, who knows, but eventually you could get to that, that place. And I remember the first time that I managed to string together all the, the elements that were required in order to play something that vaguely resembled a tune. And there was nobody more surprised than me, uh, perhaps my parents, I don't know, but, but it, was, it really felt like a huge achievement to, to do that. But that was a great lesson at an early age because it did teach me that when things seemed impossible, really just meant they were hard work. Mm. So from there, uh, I kind of went on and dedicated more and more of my time to it. I think one of the great things was, although my parents were kind of disinterested when I started playing guitar, they, they must have recognised that I was obviously pouring way more time than was perhaps healthy into to doing this. And I think they, they recognised it and eventually they bought me a guitar and encouraged me to do it. So, by the time I was at high school, I was a reasonably accomplished guitar player for my age at that time. Right, I look at—I was probably about fourteen or something. I look at fourteen-year-old kids on YouTube now, and they can play the repertoire that I would struggle to play today. So you would think, with this sort of passion for for music and guitar mm. playing growing up, that you would then go on mm. to study music. Well, again, that was a bit of an argument in our house. So. I was I was academically okay, um, smart enough, but didn't really apply myself as hard as I as I might because by that age, by so uh, I guess late teens, getting ready for exams and things, I was pretty clear I wanted to work in music. That was it. So it got to choosing sort of routes after school, and I had this conversation with my dad that went along the lines of, I want to go and study music technology, because that was the other thing. I loved I loved guitars and, and music, but I loved recording as well, the process of recording sounds and manipulating sounds, all that I loved. Uh, so I want to go and study that and do something in, in that. And, you know, you've got to understand, my dad is a forest labourer, right? That, he grew up planting trees and draining ditches and all sorts of things like that. He does not have the first clue about how any child of his would ever make a living from a career in music, right? So he said a very understandable thing, which was, go and get yourself proper education in a proper subject that I understand, that I understand the significance of, and then if you're still interested in music afterwards, go ahead. So at that point, I compromised, and I ended up going to Harriet Watt University in Edinburgh to study chemistry with computer science. The computer science bit becomes more, more useful later on, but I majored in chemistry, and, and and mostly that was literally just being pushed by my parents, particularly my dad, to go and do something that he he could see that I might be able to pay the wages with uh, later on. Okay, so this all still seems very far removed <laughs> from the games industry. So okay. how, so how, how do you get that transition right? So so basically, when I was at university, I was spending a third of my time at university studying chemistry. 
probably a third of my time in the house playing computer games with my friends <clears throat> and then a third of my time doing all sorts of things to do with music so playing guitar meeting my friends recording my friends bands all that sort of thing just teaching myself about music and computer games and then there was a science thing in, in the in the picture as well and to anybody observing from the outside they would have looked and gone well there's a third of his time studying chemistry there that's obviously valuable and this two-thirds well that's a bit of a waste of time that'll never amount to much but unbeknownst to me completely unbeknownst to me i happened to be studying the perfect triad of uh, of subjects that were required when lo and behold a job came up in dundee at the uh, at the company dma design looking for a uh, an audio engineer, somebody who could record and manipulate sound with computers and understood process and technology and things like that. It's like, goodness, that was lucky. <laughs> and um, and yeah, it's it's pretty much that. There's there's a bit more detail to it that I'll kind of gloss over because it's not particularly interesting. I think, but ultimately that was that was the set of skills that I had built up that my intention was to, to take that, ditch the, the chemistry part afterwards and then go and learn like about recording studios and, and, and all that. And as it transpired, it just happened to be the right skills at the right time in an industry that I hadn't really considered as a career. I certainly, I certainly loved computer games and wanted to make computer games, but again, in the same way that I didn't know how to tune a guitar. I had no idea how computer games got made. I'd, I'd never, never spoken to anyone who made them, so I, I really didn't have an understanding of how that happened, and I didn't for a minute think it would, would end up being me doing that. But then I must admit, it's still a really exciting industry to, to go into and to find out, oh, yeah. I've actually got something here. Yeah. yeah. Well, that was it. It was like, oh, these skills aren't just, like tolerated they're actually useful which is funny because it, it was your dad who sort of pushed you down a path that you didn't necessarily want to go down yeah. but then that's sort of pushed your life in a certain direction that's yeah, yeah allowed you to go and flourish and mm -hmm. bring in those other skills that you were wanting to do on the side anyway yeah because a lot of people certainly when i'm speaking to students and things now a lot of people will say so what did you get from the chemistry and and actually I got a lot from that chemistry course that I wouldn't have believed at the time. It's only become apparent later on. But the course didn't really teach me about chemistry. It taught but it tried to, but I kind of ignored that part. It, but what it really taught me was how to think. It taught me the scientific method, and it was the application of the scientific method combined with the technology skills and the music skills that allowed me to take some really limited technology when I first came into the industry and do interesting creative things with it. Without the ability to do that, without that ability to break things down into solvable problems and so on, I don't think I, I would have been doing much of interest. In so you joined DMA, am I right thinking at the point after they'd had success with Lemmings? Yeah. Um, yeah, so Lemmings was already out. And they were working on, I think, I think they were just finishing Lemmings 2. And I think they had hired guns. There were a few other things around that time that were coming out. And it was mid-93. So 1993 was when I, I joined. And it was a weird place. It really was. I was employee number 25, I think. So it was a it was a reasonably sized company even at that point, mm -hmm. and I was their first full time audio person. They had another guy who had been doing it part time before that. He was still at school. He, that, that's why they needed somebody full time. He was still at school. That's how young everybody was in that industry at that time. He, he couldn't get time off for his exams, so they, they needed to get somebody else, and that somebody else was me. And and yeah, it was just a really I guess it's the equivalent then of what working at a Silicon Valley startup would be now. It was just this place where traditional rules didn't apply. It was 
uh, it really felt like the uh, you know the inmates had taken over the asylum. <laughs> And they'd also been riding on a high because of the success of, of Lemmings. Totally. I mean, they had, at that point, they had so much money that they were hiring people like me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and also, they had the ambitions to grow the business as well. So they, at that point, I think they just started talking to Nintendo because obviously Lemmings had been so successful for them that everybody in the world knew who DMA Design was suddenly. And everybody was flying across to, to speak to them about working with them. And Nintendo was the prize jewel. That was the company. Everybody wanted to work with Nintendo, right? So, so the, the next big milestone. So I, I'm conscious because it's probably the precursor and every like introduction you get mm-hmm. and everything else is Grand Theft Auto because yep. of the success and the yep. massive, like, I, mean, I suppose it's... It's world renowned and it's just yeah. a, an enormous thing now. Yeah. Um, you were involved in that, like, I mean, right at the, in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, I was listening to the, the speech you gave for, was it for the BAFTA? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and you're talking about the, the brief ah, that was given at the, at the very start, which I thought was just amazing. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah it was um, the, the audio brief, the audio brief for Grand Theft Auto originally was there will be one megabyte of RAM available for sound. That was it. That's the only mention of audio in that original design document for Grand Theft Auto. So my job became, from that, figure out some way to, to make it interesting and, and in, innovative. Because for me, I think my... So it was in 1997 that it came out? Yeah, it was released in the tail end of 1997. So I think I would have been, I mean, 10 yeah. at the time. Hope you didn't play it. Well, I'm just about to tell you a story. <laughs> I might have been 11 or 12 by the time I actually got around to playing it. Um, but I remember going to a friend's house who had a big brother who'd got this. I'm pretty sure it was on PC mm-hmm. um, at that point. And we sort of huddled around the computer and it was just this little world that you could get lost in. And mm-hmm. you could do, I mean, it seemed like you could do anything. And it was the little touches, actually, before coming to chat to you, I sort of looked up some of the gameplay again, it just reminded me of the radio stations and mm-hmm. the, the things that have now become quite synonymous with mm-hmm. Grand Theft Auto, they've been built on over time and the complexity has been added to. But then even like the little squeaky voice mm-hmm. that they use on the telephone, and yeah. like, it was just brilliant, yeah. yeah. And so I'm, I'm interested to find out more about, with essentially a complete lack of a brief, mm-hmm. how do you go about designing that? How do you about being innovative in that space? Well, you start with the ambition to do something that is the best you can possibly do for that game. And I think that's the bit that I've often seen others who have worked in the audio field miss in audio design for games, is it's not your job to make the audio amazing in a game. It's your job to make the game more amazing. And audio is the tool you're going to use to do that. But, but it's not about the audio, it's about the game. So that's the first thing you have to remember. And once, once you get that front and centre in your head, then it guides every other decision that you make during that process. And it, and it is a a long process because it would be wrong to say that we started Grand Theft Auto with the idea of putting radio stations in it because that just wasn't wasn't the case. So when we started it, it was going to have a soundtrack like any other game uh, that would come on when the game started, might do a few things, and then uh, it would go away when you switched it off. So that was pretty much what we were aiming for. And it was the process of iterating that really drove it. Well, I, I guess there was two things. There was a process of iterating, so you'd, you'd get a build of it, that some sort of demo, and you'd play it, and it would just spark, oh, we could do this. And then you'd get the next build, and you'd go, oh, we could try that. And that process of just seeing the build, having to play with it, thinking about it, living with it, was, was one way. The other thing was the technology changed. So halfway through the development, at that point, games were mostly 
they didn't they couldn't play back real sound so you, you didn't have access to CDs for example it was a synthesizer so a, so a PC would have a, a sound card in it that was essentially just a cheap Casio synthesizer so you know the kind of thing you used to get here at Christmas and um, make these squeaky noises and add like bossa nova beats and things those sort of things it was one of those on a card and you had to make the most of that and oh man that was that was a no-win situation. <laughs> you were never going to, you were never going to please anybody with that. But halfway through the development, PCs suddenly got to a point where they mostly had CD drives, and the PlayStation launched. So the PlayStation was the biggest driver of the switch from from what we started doing to the next the next level, which was the radio station. Like, because at that point. It meant any game we released was going to get a PlayStation release, which meant any game we released was going to have access to a CD. And nobody knew what to do with a CD in 1996 or 1995 because there was so much space on it. There was 650 megabytes of space and, oh my God, how can we possibly fill that? Because the, the code was never going to take up that much space. Even the art, it was... It was essentially a 2D top-down game, Grand Theft Auto, at that stage. So it was all sort of reasonably low polygons. It was texture maps, sprites. Again, it was never going to take up more than, you know, I don't know, 100 meg if you were lucky. And there was just all this space. So I stepped forward and said, I think I know how we could uh, utilise that. And again, it was just, part of it was the, was trying to help the company market the game. It wasn't really about the, or at least the prime motivation wasn't, oh, you know, how can we make the audio better? It was just a case of, you've got a problem here, which is you're going to release this game on a CD and people are going to expect a CD experience. But you can't put this game on it in its current state or people are just going to be bringing it back. It's, it's, it doesn't make any use of that. So at that point, we, uh, we suggested putting on a CD soundtrack. Because other games had already done it by that point, so Wipeout games like that had started to do it. So we thought, well, that seems like a good place to to aim for. If they're doing it, we wanted to be there. It's, it's that natural sort of competitive thing, and and also you're seeing your peers. You want to be doing what they're doing and pushing it further. I suggested that, and cut a long story short, we got approval for it, and then it was just the problem of okay, how do we make whatever it was, an hour's worth of music uh, sound like it plausibly could be coming from actual radio stations in this fictitious world. And that was a whole other problem to solve. So again, it was just like the guitar, and it's like, well, that's impossible. Let's break it down. Okay, we need, um, we need an hour of music, which means we need this many tracks, which means we need these genres, which means we need these musicians, which means we need this written by here or that one. And eventually you start with, okay, then we got a phone. Let's, let's phone some people because <laughs> we're going to need some help. Um, and, and yeah, it facilitated a whole bunch of stuff that involved decking out DMA's offices at that point with a, a brand new hard drive based recording studio which was almost unheard of back in 1995 outside of like London, maybe Glasgow. So here I was, I'd gone from a chemistry degree in you know, early 90s to about halfway through the 1990s, I essentially had 24 hour access to a state of the art hard drive based recording studio. Uh, which I would never, not in a million years, would I ever have got if I'd gone to London and studied music technology or something. I'd have ended up making tea for people in a recording studio. So it's just funny the way things work out sometimes. Yeah. And I certainly didn't plan it that way. It's, that would be wrong to, to give anybody that impression. And, and the, the spark for the radio station idea was a conversation I was having with Craig Connor, the guy who was doing the, the music on I'd given him the task because I was managing the audio department at this point. He, he was, he'd been assigned to Grand Theft Auto as a full-time audio designer on it and musician. So he was given the task of write a bunch of tunes, just sketches of tunes, not, not full tunes, but just sort of 30 seconds of snippet of things that you think would fit the pace of play. So he'd written, I don't know, maybe 
10 or 20 of these snippets and we were just reviewing them. So I'd gone around and we're going through these, these collections of little here and be like, oh yeah, that sounds kind of funky. And the next one's like, oh, it's kind of rocky. And the next one was just like, that's almost a bit country and western or something. And, and eventually as we played them, they started to separate into kind of pockets of, of genres because they had similarities, because it was the same kind of writing, so they were going to have some similarities. And that was when it took, it was just like, hang on, we could actually use this to have radio stations in the game. And as soon as I said it, I could see his eyes lit up. It was just like, ah. And that was it, we're off to the races at that point. Everybody you spoke to after afterwards and said, this is what we're going to do, they just, again, you saw the eyes, like, that's brilliant. Except when it actually came to, to doing it, you'd be surprised how many people were, the, the musicians and like all the audio guys and the producers, and they were loving it, but there were still a lot of sceptics at that point. Because I don't know that, I'll stop short of saying anyone, but certainly there weren't many games at that point which had used a lot of different genres in games. So it was, it was the 90s, it was very, we were coming off the back end of like, dance music and acid house and all that, so it was quite a clubby environment and it was quite electronic based. It was before Britpop, so so we didn't really have a guitar revival at that point. And there were a lot of people just saying, no, no, we just want dance, because if you put dance music and guitar music on it, then nobody's going to like it, because the, the the people who'd like guitar music won't like the dance music, the people who'd like the dance music won't like the guitar music. But I'd taken the approach which I, I thought was perfectly reasonable was well look at something like Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction had just come out and everybody loved it and the reason that people loved the soundtrack was because it used the music in context and it was the context that made it feel authentic and give it the validity that resonated with people, that emotional re- resonance. And I thought there's no reason you can't do that with a computer game, it should be exactly the same. You you're going to be exposed to a whole bunch of genres you would never listen to for fun in your in your own time. But but you you definitely enjoy it when you're in a car and you're spinning along and there's a blaring rock track and it's like, I don't like rock music, but this feels good. It also sort of adds another element of realism to... If you haven't just carjacked someone and jumped in, yeah. the chances of you bothering to change the radio station, like you're just going to... Yeah. focus back on the game and what you were at and then you exactly. just sort of enjoy what's happening and then it feels like it that belonged to that person that you've just stolen it off of so yeah. that, that level and that context that you mentioned is really important and again as you, you said before it adds to the game mm-hmm. um, and that's the, the sort of focal point of it which is yeah brilliant Love yeah and that was it just the, that everything stemmed from there in terms of how can we make the game better so the all the pedestrian comments where people shouting, hey, watch it, buddy, and, you know, hey, I'm walking here. Again, that was just something, how can we add a little bit of humour and a little bit more authenticity, a little bit more credibility to the world to make it feel like a real place where you could go on these ridiculous crime sprees. And, and, and that was it. The police, all the police radio saying there's a crime being committed in this area. All that was created again just to reinforce the illusion that this was a living, breathing city. And I think one of the things I'm most proud of with Grand Theft Auto 1 is if you turn the sound off on that game, it doesn't really feel like a living, breathing city anymore. It's the sound, from my perspective, uh, maybe I'm being a bit biased, but I think it's the sound that really makes that experience feel like a living, breathing city more than any other aspect. Yeah, I totally agree, and it's it's the layers, the layering of it, and the amount of things that are happening and going on. Mm. I think that's what makes the game work. Yeah, so so moving on from that, you obviously didn't stay at at, at DMA. No, nope. I, I moved on, and a lot of that was because it became apparent. I did Grand Theft Auto, which was without doubt one of the best experiences of my career. It was, as you would expect. It, it was really exciting to be working on something where you could see it was coming together to be something special from an audio perspective. And it's always important here from an audio perspective. Grand Theft Auto 2, I enjoyed not as much because it obviously wasn't quite as exciting, 
but it allowed us to address a lot of the mistakes we've made in the first one, just do things a little bit better, we got to, to sort of flesh it out. And then, then it was when we started Grand Theft Auto 3, I realised, oh, okay, this is becoming a Grand Theft Auto studio, this isn't going to be DMA Design, the pioneering company that's doing all these things, because we were working on, Grand Theft Auto was one of, <clears throat> I don't know, maybe eight projects that we had in development at that time, that as the as the central audio team for the whole company, I was working across all of those, and and that I really enjoyed. That was the exciting part. Grand Theft Auto was obviously a great part of it, but it was the it was working across all these different teams that I really loved. And when it became apparent, Grand Theft Auto Three was the start of DMA becoming a Grand Theft Auto studio. I kind of lost a bit of interest there, and and also. Whilst Grand Theft Auto 3, as everyone knows, uh, became this phenomenon, most of the innovation was actually around the world and the, the visions. That was really what I felt was going to be the focus, and it was clear from the outset that was going to, going to be the focus. And it only, it, again, from an audio perspective, it just felt like they were bringing the graphics up to the, to the audio bar at that point. It felt like we were already there. And if anything, the early discussions on Grand Theft Auto suggested that audio was going to have to take a step back in order to let the graphics come up to that level. And you can imagine that's not a particularly appealing or exciting proposition for somebody who's who's already done Grand Theft Auto 1 and 2. So at that point I started looking around at, at options for no other reason than I, I guess I'm at my best when I'm learning new stuff, working with people who are, who are pioneering new things. I really like finding, exploring, you know, I really love exploring media and technology and things like that. And so at that point I started looking around. And the problem at that point was, from an audio perspective, there wasn't really a whole lot of options where you were going to go. And at that point, what I hadn't realised was how rare the situation we had at DMA was, where we had a company that really valued their audio, their audio experience of their, their players. It's not the norm. So I looked around at a few other places as well, and it just wasn't really, it, it wasn't really going to happen. I, I could have moved to another company. There were certainly plenty of other people at that point who I could have gone and worked for, but it all just felt like a step back. I'd already done the thing that I was... I was going to do there. So I decided to tackle the next problem, which was most of the issues that you hit in game in game audio production, most of what goes wrong is not caused by a limitation within game audio, it's caused by a limitation within the way games themselves are developed. So it's caused within the actual development process, usually because it's not considered as an integral part of the experience. It's your designers or producers will think of the visuals and they'll think of the code. They won't think of the audio and they won't think of level design and, and other sort of subcategories of, of that. So they're just, just a little bit secondary to the whole thing. And, and so I thought, well, I fancy fixing that. Let's see if uh, let's see if anybody else fancies it. By this point, we've been joined by a, a guy, Gary Penn, who had come in to work at DMA. He was their creative manager, and he'd been championing this way of working that was very, very much based on his magazine. He works in the magazine industry, and he had this approach, which was: look, in the magazine industry, you've got twelve issues a year. You have to get them out the door, and if you don't get them out the door, you lose your job. And it. He, had, he just had this production line mentality that I loved. It was, it it was, it wasn't denying the, the kind of complexities of the creative process, but it was time boxing it. It's a case of yeah, you can be as creative as you want up until here, and then you have to get it finished in the box, and then it's ready to ship. And there's two ways of of viewing that. Some people, and certainly most of the people at DMA Design, just viewed that as, oh my god, that is the worst thing you could possibly do because you're you're driving down quality, you're killing creativity. Um, 
Or you could view it the other way, which is the way I viewed it, which was, oh my God, that's so empowering. So it means we get to finish this thing after a very short period. And then if we don't like it, we get to make it again, but make it better based on this thing that we've already got as a blueprint uh, and, and work from there. But I guess most other people maybe didn't recognize the idea of, in the magazine industry, you have to do a different magazine every, every month. In the games industry, I think they assumed that if you were making a game in a month, the next month you had to make a different game rather than, no, you could actually just make the same game, but better. And then you could make it a bit bigger, but, but it means there's incremental steps and it's always growing out from a central point that is working. Because so many games that I, I saw at DMA, their biggest problem was nobody could ever play them. So you were, you were building assets and designing a game based around a game that nobody had played yet. And that was just, I don't know how you do that. And to this day, I still don't know how you do that. So it's become a central part of what we do now, which is it has to be playable. Every week, there has to be a build. It has to be playable. We all have to play it because that's how you know whether it's working or not and where you should go next. It's not like there's some, it's not like there's some predetermined map to the end and you just, you know, turn it out and it'll work. You have to take a temperature check every, it's like cooking, you, know, you have to check everything. How, how's this doing? Is it burnt? <laughs> or is it still, still, not, uh, still not ready? So he'd been championing that and I was a big fan of that. So I decided, I would like to start a studio built around that ethos. And that was the genesis for, <coughs> for Denki. So I had, then had the problem of how do you raise money to go and start a, a company. Unfortunately, well, I had some, some friends within DMA Design itself that were also keen to work with a, this sort of new production approach. And we just started working in our spare time, just seeing what we could not together. Did that for probably the best part of a year, just working on our own weekends, evenings, things like that, until we had few little demos of things that we felt were pretty good. And then, as luck would have it, the guy that was running DMA Design at the time decided he was leaving DMA Design and going off to do other stuff. So when he left, we approached him and said, well, if you're leaving, um, any chance you could help us to, to kind of take this idea that we've been working on forward? So he helped us to... to find the funding and the partners that would help us to, to start Denki without having to work for no money for a period of time. So how many people was that right at the start? There were four people right at the start. So just a, a absolute nucleus of a team. One programmer, one artist, uh, one designer, and myself covering kind of audio and the businessy side of things as well. So that was, that was the core of it. And from there, we set out on a quest to try and make games more efficiently and, and better because we were sick of taking three or four years of our lives to learn the lessons from a game that we made. You know, Grand Theft Auto took at least three years, probably four. And it's only the, all the learnings at the end. It's at the arse end, right? So. So you make all the decisions at the beginning, and then you make a bunch of decisions during it. But you only know if it's worked, if these were good decisions. You only really know that when it all comes together at the end. And when that's only happening once every three or four years, there's not that many three or four year loops in a career before you've burnt through your entire career and you haven't really learned that much. So we wanted to get back to smaller teams, smaller projects that we could get through faster, so we could learn faster, so we could implement the, the changes faster and we could make, we could hone our craft. And you'd time. have control. Yeah. So you say these are the kind of projects that I want to take on, I want to do. Yeah, that wasn't the main driving force though, to be honest. If, if, the opportunity, if the opportunity had come up to work on things that we didn't particularly want to do, we would still have taken it because it wasn't, it wasn't the desire to express ourselves creatively that was driving us. It was the desire 
to show there was a better way or to find that there was a better way of making these things. That's interesting because you're probably the first person that's said that, that's made a, a, tra- a similar transition. But often it's the creativity that drives, yeah. not the, the desire to prove other people wrong or to show yeah. that you have found a better mechanism of working. Yeah, and well, for me, I, I, I'm probably a bit unusual as somebody work, who's worked in the creative industries for a long time, and in that I don't really have some huge burning creative desire to make my things. I don't really feel I've got that much to say, to be perfectly honest, when it comes to, <coughs> to creativity, as, as anybody who listens to my songwriting will be able to, <laughs> to attest to. But then is that not your release, like your, the writing and creation of music, is that not where you... Yeah, it, it, that's, that's the bit where I, I could get to do whatever I want and generally do. I, I do enjoy that, but it's a small part of what motivates me to get up in the morning and go and, and do stuff. Okay, so what, what does then? Learning, so learning new things, solving new challenges, especially if they're seemingly impossible challenges. I love things that people look at and say, you, you just can't do that. It's like, okay. They're kind of throwing this about me or something that I just, I just want to not, not prove them wrong, but I just don't believe it. So that motivation was certainly coupled with an element of, oh, and by the way, we get to make original products that we like. That's never a bad thing, don't get me wrong. But it was more a case of I would be happy to to create an environment where other people within the team could have that part and lead that part. And I would facilitate and support them. Um, I'm much more of a much more of a supporter than I am a leader when it comes to that. I don't really like leading unless I absolutely have to. I like supporting other people who have a vision to achieve that vision. And that was one of the reasons I think it worked pretty well in DMA was because there was uh, there was a guy there in, in Dave Jones who knew what he wanted to do, didn't always know how to, to do it. And that was part of the fun, was working with him to figure out how he was going to get done. And then trying to, he'd set the bar so high and then you had to try and get over that and then take it up a notch as well. I love that. It's great. So we tried to capture that in Denki when we set up as well but in much smaller projects where we could get through them faster. You guys have produced literally hundreds of games. Mm. And it's down to this, this way of... Very small them. ones, I yeah. should say. Like, no, but no, they're still games. Though. They are, yeah. Um, and it, it feels like you, you did that way before app stores. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like where you would have the time when you'd have 10 games in your pocket just to take around with you mm-hmm. wherever you go. Yeah, I mean, I've been working at Denki now for 17 years, which seems ridiculous. I would never for a minute have thought I would be in the same place 17 years later, except you have to understand that it doesn't feel like the same job. So it actually feels like I've had probably about six different jobs since I joined Denki, because it's been at least four different companies, not physically, but in terms of what how it's functioned. So we started doing the Game Boy Advance when that came out, and that was handheld, so that, that allowed us to do smaller projects. But then the next big thing was interactive television. So Sky TV came to us after we'd done Denki Plots, which was our first, our first game on Game Boy Advance, and said, we really like this, could we put it on interactive television? And we'd never heard of interactive television. So this was 2001, right? And we went and had a look and thought, it's pretty limited in terms of technology, but yeah, yeah, we could do that. And part of us, again, just part of the ethos of the people at Denki was, we believe that anything should be, you should be able to make anything fun. So if it's a, a crappy old set-top box for a television, yeah, we'll be able to build a game on that. You know, it was part of, the, part of the challenge. So we ported it across onto the set-top box for Sky TV. They did an advert. It went out and it did something like a million paid downloads in six months, which was like, I don't know, a hundred times the revenue that it ever did on Game Boy Advance. And for me, that really highlighted, like, oh my God, this is where the market's going. This is, so that was casual games right there. Okay, that was the, for me, the, the genesis of, 
of casual games. And so we chased that market. We thought, well, if this is it now, then let's get stuck in here because this was perfect. It was customer who had an audience that needed entertained. They had an interactive platform that they controlled. So it was a wall garden. They controlled who came in and came out. They had micropayments before PayPal or anything like that. And they were willing to pay for content. And we could make these games in three or four months from scratch. So they were ideal. They fitted our, our model of what we wanted to do as game developers perfectly. As a result, we worked with them for about seven or eight years. And yeah, we must have built 150 games for them during that time. We got to the point we had six teams running in parallel. So we were overlapping production periods where we'd have one game in pre-production, one game in production, one game in post-production, and the teams would be cycling out. Uh, and it was great. It was exactly what we'd hoped, what we'd said could be done, but, but proven out on a small scale. Now, obviously, when you scale that up to full-on AAA development, loads of things become way more complicated. But as a proof of concept, it's right there. You know, we thrived in that market. It was brilliant. So what's really valuable there was your process and the, the yeah. way that you worked. Yeah. And I suppose, and that's what you said when you set out, that mm-hmm. I want to prove that this is the best way to do it and yep. it's a viable way to run a yep. business within the games industry. Yeah. And that's where you built the value, which is interesting. Yeah, and it was... And over that period, we really did get to the point where we were a production powerhouse. You know, we really were. We know it works. We've got the process. We just need, we just need to document it, systematize it, so that we can teach it to, to other people. So we started doing that, and then it was like, right, okay, on to the next thing. So the next thing was once you've proven that you you can be productive in an efficient and effective way, the next thing is the creative one. So it's okay. We essentially developed our own way of coming up with ideas and then proving the ideas and then prototyping the ideas and getting them to a point where we believed there was something worth investing in there. We built five prototypes, we took them to GDC, started shopping them around, sold three of them, which is damn near unheard of, I think, but we got funding for three of them. And that's where everything started to go really wrong for us. <laughs> the problem with it was it, we couldn't have picked up a worse time. So it was that. So 2008 to 2010, that, that period there, just as the entire financial market melted down, the iPhone had just come in, the App Store had got big. Publishers didn't know what was happening to their business model, they couldn't access finance. It, just the entire industry just seized up for about 12 months. And as a result of that, we just, we, we fell firmly between two stools, which was, we were slightly too late for the the traditional business model of working with a publisher. That was dying. And we were slightly too early for all the independently financed um, community stuff. And as a result, we ran out of cash and ended up having to lay off three quarters of the company. So that was not a good period. It was... Horrendous, because up until that point, we'd essentially run, as an independent development studio, we'd run for 10 years without laying anybody off, which must be some sort of record in this industry, I'll tell you. So that was a, a real kind of smack in the face, and you're, you're left looking at the at what, what's left going, oh my goodness, you know. So, And from that point, it's, it's really changed our course and what we're doing. And that we we don't want to have to get back to a large studio because I think we're about twenty five people at that point, and it's a lot. When it goes wrong, it goes horribly wrong. So we're trying to keep the studio a lot more, you know, a lot tighter now, and oscillate between doing work for hire to build up cash reserves and then spend it all on innovating, interesting projects, and then just working between that and taking taking any opportunities when we where we can see it to do cool original stuff. So one of the things I want to talk about is around about your picture culture. Oh yeah. Uh, so you talked about 
creative efficiency mm-hmm. and creative engines and also the, the, the sort of concept of burning through people mm-hmm. um, as a as a resource so I'm interested to find out although you sort of set it out in Pichacucci you, you didn't really describe how you're actively combating that what, one of the perspectives I'm coming from is pretty much throughout the that whole 10 year period where we were doing proving the production method and then trying to apply it to original creative games there was very little overtime work it was pretty strictly 9 to 5 5 days a week now ask anybody in our industry in the computer games industry for if that's normal and they'll tell you it's not normal now let alone in the 2000s when there was this whole, whole attitude of you're not really working on games unless you're working weekends and eating pizza and all the rest of that nonsense. So so that was the other thing. It was the case, well, not only are we going to try and make games more efficiently to the point where we can do it in a shorter period of time, six weeks or ten weeks or however long it is to get one of these micro sky games out, but we expect people to work nine to five and not have to come in at the weekends and, and evenings unless they are particularly motivated themselves to want to do that for some reason. I always felt when, if we ended up with a situation where somebody was having to come in and work late, it means there's a commercial problem. It's not a development problem, it's a commercial problem. It means you either haven't planned your schedule correctly or you haven't charged enough for the job or something but it's never as a result of or almost never as a result of the person who's actually doing the work it's sometimes that they don't have the information they need in order to do the job you need them to do that happens as well there's a lot of things that can cause it but I hate it when I see people looking at people crunching as, as it's become euphemistically termed in, in our our industry and going oh yeah you know that's cool or I crunched so hard last week like I grew up you know it's not sustainable and it's it's symptomatic of a bigger issue and you should be tackling that issue as a priority so so from that perspective we then went to to how how does that apply on a bigger level if, if you look at the the industry as a whole and the world as a whole. And that was when I started to get this idea of, well, again, the probably science-y background, fascinated with somebody like James Watt. I looked at what James Watt had done to, to power the Industrial Revolution, right? And basically what James Watt did, he didn't invent the steam engine like everybody thinks he did. He improved the steam engine that was already there. So he took the Thomas Newcomen's design and made it five times more efficient, something like that. And as a result of that efficiency increase, you had to burn less coal for the same amount of power. And if you burn less coal, you use less coal, so you save money on your coal bill, so you could profit from the difference. And that was the, the essence of it. And I thought, why does that apply to the games industry? And it's like, yeah, there's this big... We talk about creative industries, right? We, everybody's like, creative industries, creative industries. Like, well, okay, there's an implication there. If we have creative industries, then there must be creative factories in a creative industry, right? And if we have creative factories, it's not unreasonable to assume there may be a creative engine within the creative factory that powers the creative industry. Maybe they're not hidden, maybe they're not obvious and that they're not made of pipes and levers and pistons and pulleys. What would they be made of? And I started looking at that thing, well, they're they're made of human beings. When you look at a creative engine in a company like Denki or, or any creative business, it's made of a team of people usually. So there's a, there'll be a designer and a producer and a programmer and artist, whoever, and it's the way they work together. How they work together defines the creative engine, the type of creative engine you're using. The way that's laid out in the office defines your creative factory and your space. And then ultimately the efficiency that comes out at the end of that is, is the efficiency of your industry overall. And once you start thinking of it like that, it starts to suggest certain things you probably shouldn't do. Like, you probably shouldn't 
just keep shoveling people into a creative engine that patently isn't particularly efficient because it, it just burns people's lives. That's the point, right? In a creative engine, you don't burn coal, you burn people's lives because it takes time and, and creative energy and all that. So we should be respecting that first and foremost. Yeah? So don't be a company that thinks they're doing great things by, by bringing shitloads of people into this horribly inefficient engine that you have in your office or whatever. And I guess that's one of the problems I have is like, I don't see that as successful. I actually look at that and think, no, that's, you're part of the problem. You're not part of the solution. I would not be happy to be part of that. I think there's a, a, I suppose there's a perception that if you are a big company, you yeah. are successful, and the more people you employ, yeah. the more successful you are, and the bigger the turnover. And yeah, that's, that's one of the biggest myths that we have. It's, it's, yeah. it's, what's worse about it is it actively harms us. Everyone is harmed by that, and particularly people, creative people in the creative industries. You find a lot of people who are just burnt out by the, the whole process. Careers in games tend to be short. I am a you know, an exception to that. Some of the people that I'm lucky enough to work with are exceptions to that, but it's not normal. A lot of people are sort of five, ten years in a row. So that's what tells the story in itself. I think so. Yeah, I think so. And I also think that the the next generation coming into the games industry kind of owe it to those people that they shouldn't have to sort all that shit out. You know, we should we should have done that. Um, but um, unfortunately, we don't really see as as much of that happening as we perhaps could and one of the reasons for that is that we still as an industry have the economic problem of, of 9 out of 10 games that we make don't make any money we're making the wrong things or we're making things that don't connect with people or, or having value to them or they're not aware of or something and and that is the the foundation that that's quite weak it's hard to build very high on a foundation like that so to, to sort of wrap up, to, to talk about Dundee as a city mm-hmm. and the games industry within that, over the next few years, what I mean, what would you like to see happen? Obviously, there's a lot of change and there's a lot of focus on the city, yeah. and especially within the creative sector. But yeah, what I mean, what for you would you love to see happen? Well, more than anything, I would love to see a huge hit game come out of Dundee, and I don't care who does it, I don't care where it comes from, I. I I would love that if it was Denki that did it, but I really don't care. Dundee needs another Lemmings or Grand Theft Auto. That's really where it's at at the moment. So fortunately we have lots of people working in this industry, a lot of really skilled people, a lot of really talented people working on it. So I know it's the potential is there, it can certainly happen, but there's so many, there's so many unpredictable elements to it, so many variables you just can't control. So so that's the one thing I would like to see because people talk about well, what creates what creates value in a, an economy in, in digital media or whatever. And the truth is, it, at the moment, it is successful, economically successful projects. Every year I hear people talking about, oh, it's really hard to get people to, to want to come and work in Dundee and it's hard to keep them in Dundee if they're here and, that sort of thing. It's true, unless you have a really successful project. Because when you have a really successful project, people will come from anywhere in order to work on your project. That's the talent magnet. It's, it's the work. It's not really the city. I mean, the city helps. So the stuff that's happening down the waterfront and everything just now, brilliant, you know. Really happy to see that happening because it, it does change the external perspectives that people have. But I willingly moved to Dundee when it didn't have a multi-screen cinema, yeah. and and don't regret it for a minute because that's not why I came here. If I wanted to go to the cinema, I'll go someplace else. I came here to work on amazing projects with talented people, and that's what creative people move for. I think certainly in, in my industry. So more than anything, I'd love to see another like blockbuster breakthrough game 
And that was Colin. Thank you very much to him for spending the time and he also gave me some advice and we've been chatting about the sort of future of the podcast as well and he's been really helpful in that respect. So an extra special thanks to him for, for all the help that he's been um, over the last few weeks. And I know he's also a, an avid listener, so I wonder, I'm not sure whether he'll listen back to his own episode or not. But yeah, so going forward, again, if you do want to help support the podcast, please do go and check those products out. It really means a lot to me and it really helps me sustain and keep this going because I would love to keep this going as long as possible. Um, and this is just one of the ways that um, I'm looking at to help generate just that little bit of money that, that keeps it viable in the in the long term so I can keep putting myself in front of interesting people and capturing their stories, their thoughts, their insights. Um, but yeah, you can also keep up with all the details. I might release a few other bits and pieces, so if you want to keep up with that and everything else podcasty, uh, go to at CCC Dundee on Instagram and on Twitter. And we've now got the Facebook group, which is facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash CCC Dundee. And again, everything goes up there. I started doing some little teasers, so you'll get to find out who's on the podcast first if you join the Facebook group. That's it for this week. I will catch you next week with another exciting podcast.